0: Yo, welcome to the My City
1: Podcast. All right, cool. I'm um, got
0: you.
1: Okay, yo, 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 welcome back to the My City Podcast, episode 50. Um, that's a landmark episode, so I just want to take this time to honestly just thank everyone that has um, listened for the past 50 episodes. It's been over two years. Um, the growth has been real. Um, like, um, even if you just tuned in once and you sent us a message just to tell us what you thought and whatnot, we're, we're grateful. And um, yeah, honestly, thanks a lot for that. Um, you've got your boy, Sam. You've got your boy, Ire. How you doing, bro?
0: I'm good, bro. Um, how are you? You good?
1: Yeah, man. Well, yeah, I'm getting better, man. Getting better. Um, adjusting every day.
0: Exactly,
1: yeah. We good. We good.
0: Yeah. Uh, once again, uh, once again, thanks to everyone who's tuned in for the last, um, 50 episodes. Uh, have been doing it for almost three years now, so it's great, you know, seeing how everyone's gone. From going to live shows, to looking at of our spotlight series on Instagram, to just tuning in and leaving reviews and feedback, uh, we appreciate it. Um, um, we've got
1: a wonderful guest today. My lad, Doctor Fabienne. How are you? How are you, Doctor Fabienne?
2: I'm good, thank you.
1: <laughs> Thanks a you lot for joining. Me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thank you. I
2: appreciate you guys too. Thank you.
1: Cool. Um, right, so doc- today, today we're gonna. I got you. I was gonna say, um, Doctor Fabienne is a. It's a psychotherapist, right?
2: I'm a clinical psychologist
1: clinical psychologist we'll get on to um a bit more about you just after we um talk about the last episode and a bit of the differences between the two as well but um yeah today we essentially want to have a bit of a discussion about mental health um especially during this lockdown but very quickly do you want to talk about what the last episode of that yeah so if you
0: haven't already uh, tuned into the last episode we had dr Jamil on and we spoke about how our bodies will defeat coronavirus from a biological point of view. So, we looked at the whole, the complete biology behind um, coronavirus, how it affects us, why we get sick, and then, um, what our immune response will be. And then we also spoke about how the NHS is coping with the demand and what vaccines could look like. And if you haven't already, tune into our um, spotlight series with Dr. Catherine, and she gave a more in depth um, series or explanation as to what we can do from a practical point of things as in, like, when to go to the GP and when we should feel safe um, taking a vaccine. And if you haven't already, check out on Twitter or Instagram, um, at Massey Podcast. Uh, and today, as, as Sam mentioned, we have Dr. Babian on, and we're going to be looking at mental health in the black community and all things there, and also discuss some of the stigmas of having a therapist and what we can do better to um, improve our mental health.
1: Also I'll just add to that that um well you've probably seen it already as Irrae said, but we're gonna have this Spotlight of the Week series um every week now. So make sure you like, you you know, you follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, everything and um, also get in touch if you think you've got something that you'd like to share with our community and you'd like to be spotlighted. Cool. All right yeah, then so, so what yeah, go
0: ahead. yeah, what we like to do what we like to do with spotlights, um is we like to get someone on who's doing well in the industry, they don't have to be established yet, or someone who's got a voice, an idea, and, you know, who can, who thinks that they can provide valuable content to our um, audience. So if you feel like she's, um, hit us up at my podcast at gmail.com or DM Sam or myself.
1: Yeah. All right, then. So let's get on to um, the topic of today. Um, Fabian, do you want to just quickly give us a brief intro into yourself? So who you are, what you do, what you do, and yeah just saying
2: about yourself yeah um uh so my name is fabian uh, i am a clinical psychologist and um i work in the nhs for an organization that supports children young people and their families um who've experienced a, a really specific kind of trauma and I also work with like wider professional networks to help them provide the support and care that those children families need during that time. Um, and I also have established my own private practice for, for thera- um, offering <laughs> therapy for um, the adults who want a space to work through their own difficulties. So yeah, that's a bit about me. That's so, all so dope,
0: that's i so dope, that's so all so dope. So dope. We love, we, you know, we started a Black Queen, I'm doing what you can for the community.
1: <laughs> uh, Sam, what did you want to say? I was just going to say that's great. Um, do you, have you um, found any. Okay, let's first start by defining mental health then. Uh, how would you define it? So, coming from your profession and what you've seen in your line of work.
2: I guess it might be helpful for me to just start off the bat by explaining that I do have slightly alternative views, so it might not fit for everyone, but... um,
0: That's perfect. That's exactly what we want, that's perfect. That's perfect, I'm I'm, clicking my fingers as we speak. (laughs)
2: Okay, so um, yeah, when I think about mental health, um, I guess there is a kind of general uh, view of what that means uh, colloquially, so we might be thinking about... Um, somebody's emotional kind of well-being or their their sort of emotional state and sometimes when people kind of refer to mental health it seems more like they're saying the sort of presence of a kind of clinical diagnosis or a label of some kind so it can often be kind of used to just say you know you have mental health or you don't have mental health or you have mental health problems but actually if we think about it kind of more broadly um, mental health is kind of in the same way that you might think about physical health, it's it's a state, it's something that's on a spectrum. So we have to do things that kind of help us to um, look after our mental health or our emotional wellbeing. It's probably a term that kind of fits better for me. Um, But basically there are lots of different factors that might influence how well we're feeling. Um, And that might be things like our life experiences, whether we've had opportunities to develop or learn different coping strategies, thinking about the resources around us, There's lots of different things that can affect how we present, how we make sense of the world, how we look at ourselves. And all of those things will contribute to our overall um, sort of mental health and emotional well-being. And and as a psychologist, I'm kind of interested in the kind of the story behind a label. And when I say a label, I'm talking about the things like depression, I'm talking about anxiety, I'm talking about like just psychiatric labels that that are sort of used quite frequently. There's nothing wrong with having a label if that fits for you. But as a psychologist, I'd be thinking more about, well, how did you get to this point? As opposed to thinking what's wrong with you, we'd be thinking about what's happened and what kinds of things. you like to be different and basically how how can i or other people support you to get there so we use things like theory and what we know about what works in practice to basically help people to get to the kind of level of mental health well-being that they they want to get to but broadly speaking it's on a spectrum everybody has mental health and it's something that you know, can be affected by lots of different factors. So it's, it's really about understanding what they are for you and finding a way of kind of getting to the point that you want to be and, and sort of having a good
0: balance in your life. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, it's similar to, mm-hmm. I, I like the fact that you made a, you made a good reference to physical health. Um, just like physical health is, is a state of, it, it, just like physical is a measurement of how someone is physically, um, I guess, Mental health is a you know it refers to a particular person's psychological and emotional and well-being, um, and I, and of course it goes on a range. So you can't be mentally, I guess, I guess, I guess you can be mentally unhealthy, but if you're mentally healthy, there's a range. Just like you can be physically unhealthy, and then mm-hmm. if you are physically healthy, there's a difference between body A and body B, and stamina A and stamina B, and fitness A, fitness B. I guess.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a really good way of
1: putting it. I guess the issue I have with that or the challenge would be, um if we're if we're talking about mental health as a spectrum as opposed to a um a yes or no kind of thing, like a either you are either you've got good mental health or you don't, then surely that that kind of goes against the fact that, you know, you've got to tailor um everything to an individual. Like what may be seen as bad mental health for one person, or someone is not coping, or someone's depressed, or whatever for one person could actually be like completely fine for another. If that if that makes sense. Sort of, my question I'm asking is, um, who makes the thresholds then, which decides that you now have a mental health disorder, um, as opposed to you're just, you know, you're feeling a bit down today.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, well, in a kind of um... NHS setting or context, um, you would be thinking about um, having an assessment determine whether you're presenting with kind of clinical symptoms of a particular diagnosis or, or label so um, for example with anxiety or depression there will be questionnaires self-report questionnaires that people are handed and asked to kind of think about how they've been feeling over the last couple of weeks and if you score a particular level on those questionnaires then that would indicate that you're likely to be you know experiencing a particular mental health um, uh, difficulty, or um, that it might lend itself to a more kind of formal diagnosis. That, in addition to so the the self reports, so what people kind of come to either a GP, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or various different practitioners that they may come into contact with, they will um, basically take you know usually some sort of self report in the, in the form of a questionnaire. Um, there's also kind of a, a kind of more informal or structured um. Uh, assessment that people or an interview that people will have where um, they're asked a bit more about their you know life experiences and they'll be asked about their current sort of mental state so that might be um, you know thinking about whether they may be here or see things that other people don't hear or see as an example but there'll be lots of different criteria different um, parts of that um, interview that will help the clinician who's doing that assessment to to get a sense of whether this person maybe fits more within one particular diagnostic category or another so um, if you're thinking about clinical presentations there there are sort of standards or there are kind of like broader frameworks that help us to um sort of try and categorize people but they you know there, there are cha- challenges with that so it's not a perfect science and it does rely on you know lots of different Sources of information when it's a thorough assessment, Um, but it's based on kind of Eurocentric um, ideas about emotional well-being or what what's right or what's not right. So that there are problems with that, but um, you know, it's it can be a kind of starting point or a way of helping people to to recognise that there are things that they want to be different or things that they're struggling with on a kind of like you know concrete structured um format so that's i don't know if that answers your question but that's one way of looking
1: at it fantastic no no i honestly appreciate that thanks so. a lot um i guess sort of um, merging that onto the next point as well then um are things such as race or um again this goes back to the to the um tailoring to different kinds of people but are black people seen as more likely to have mental health problems? Um, I know we're going to get onto stigmas and stuff like that later. But just talking about actually having bad mental health, are we seen as more likely to have that than like, like white people, for example?
2: That's um, so actually like a really interesting question, because actually um, what the statistics will tell you is that black people don't tend to be offered um, services at the kind of earlier stage of maybe developing some kind of mental difficulty or becoming distressed. So um, you you would think from looking at the numbers that maybe black people don't experience things like low level depression or anxiety or things like panic attacks or you know like the kinds of um, distress that might kind of see you visiting your GP and then them referring you on to see someone for kind of like telephone sessions or like regular contact with somebody who will give you like strategies and advice to try and manage uh, the the symptoms or the difficulties you've come with. Um, The the statistics often point to black people being in the sharper ends of services. So that would be um, within kind of, you know, inpatient hospitals um, or uh, being, you know, taken through the criminal justice system and not necessarily receiving adequate care but having labels or diagnoses such as psychosis or schizophrenia um so uh, black people tend to be much more likely to be diagnosed with that um, as a as a psychiatric um, label than um, their white counterparts. Um, and it's often associated with much poorer outcomes, much higher levels of distress, um, much more kind of restrictive treatment as well. So it's um, that's the kind of picture that you would sort of that, that seems to be painted of black people that we do experience mental health difficulties, but that they're much more severe and enduring. Um, Um, There's also uh, this kind of narrative around, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma that a lot of black people are kind of presenting with really high levels of trauma. And um, again, uh, that's that's probably at the point when they're about to access um, a kind of sharper end of the service or, um, you know, not not having had opportunities to engage with like lower level or Um, less intense services before that point so it, that's that's what the statistics would say, but I'm sure again, kind of you know, colloquially or through speaking with people that you know, that you get a sense that there is a kind of a variety of things that people may be stru- um, struggling with. So people do experience. Black people will still experience anxiety and panic attacks and OC obsessive compulsive disorder. And you know, I'm throwing out all these labels in a kind of a bit of a flippant way because yeah, on the one and I don't think actually is it really helpful to label people in that way but that people still do present black people do still present with very similar kind of um uh diagnoses but the way it's made sense of or the way that people present with them might be different than their eurocentric counterparts or their their white counterparts
0: what well, what would you say are some of the most common mental health conditions in the black community i know you just i know, I know you're giving some labels Oh, I know you have said some recently, um, but like, what would you say the top three or the let's say top five? And I guess, it's, I guess it'll be different when dealing with children to adults, right? Um, so maybe if you can give some from children for top three, you see, and then top three for adults.
2: The I would say actually, it's okay to kind of generalize more broadly because what what the. The challenge is, is that we don't have enough data about what what people are being diagnosed with, because a they're not really accessing the services um, and having kind of like an uh, an assessment of their difficulties or their needs at various points in um, their journey. So it tends to be people who are really kind of like at you know the, that crisis point or really struggling. So they're getting much um, much more like I was saying severe an enduring label. So it would be, I I think, the the ones I've mentioned already, psychosis or schizophrenia, which is a bit more of an outdated term, but that's something that people would would be black people are more likely to, to have as, as a kind of common mental health disorder and then um, there's also a, a PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder as being the ones that are kind of most documented so that's if you're asking me about what what the research is saying that those are the sorts of things that you will find but you know things like the, the common mental health disorders or diagnoses are things like anxiety and that could include like I said panic attacks um, low mood and depression and um, there's also things like eating, problems with eating and um, so it's it's quite difficult to say actually specifically for black people which ones come up the most because they're not actually being documented in the way that we, we need them to to be able to say that definitively.
1: It's, a, it's an interesting one that you mentioned um, trauma because I feel like um, sometimes what Happens is that maybe you have an adverse mental health um, disorder or issue, and you don't realise that is that. I mean, I remember while I was um, while I was uh, were much younger, I was in school. Um, I, I was very angry. I was just chronically angry, like to the point where um, it was a problem. And the school that I attended to, I think I, I mentioned this in the first um, podcast that we did, but the school that I attended. Um, rather than kicking me out of the school or doing whatever, they got, a, I don't know if it was a psychiatrist or someone, basically I had anger management um, like sessions, weekly anger management sessions with someone that was specially brought to the school for me. Mm-hmm. And it was only during the course of these sessions and being forced to like open up and talk and talk about like trauma from my past and things that I've seen that I was later like diagnosed with having anger, whatever whatever, you, whatever the condition is that you need to have, anger management. And she mentioned mental health in that capacity. And I honestly do feel like a lot of people have adverse mental health problems and don't even realize it's something that needs to be diagnosed or assessed in the way that you say. And the other thing I was gonna say as well is, um, if, when you were mentioning schizophrenia and things like that, it brought me back to uni where um they were talking about marijuana and like weed and stuff like that being um having links to um basically things like schizophrenia and other mental health issues so i don't know if that's something that's being that's discussed in any of the circles that you're in as um maybe something that can be linked to um the prevalence of of those conditions in our community i don't know if you'd have anything to add on that or anything that you've heard
2: It's it's, um, what you were saying about, just to quickly step back about the sort of anger and the trauma narrative. I do think that in general, people don't really connect their life experiences with their kind of current difficulties. It can sort of take an outsider coming in and saying, oh, all those things that you've just said about your life, all the things that you've seen and witnessed, actually in you know it makes sense that you would be feeling the way that you feel so sometimes that that's kind of like a journey that people will go on through the help of a, either a therapist or somebody else in a kind of um similar capacity um but i think specifically for um For black people there is a narrative around sort of soldiering on you know and basically not having the 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 headspace or the opportunity to to reflect with other people about the impact of you know things that maybe we might assume are everyone's experience um and you know being able to make sense of how that could be affecting how you feel day-to-day or the um the struggles that you might be facing um the other thing about um the, the the narrative around uh you know smoking weed and how that's gonna lead to um becoming um, paranoid or having schizophrenia or psychosis um because these sorts of things these conversations do feel like they've moved on in terms of the cohort of people that i trained with or the types of you know, colleagues that I'm around now, there are still questions about what, you know, the strains of weed and how that might impact on people's, um, their brains and, um, you know, general kind of like lifestyle factors if you're um, more isolated or if you're, um, you know, there's lots of other things that might be affected that might be impacting on how somebody might develop a mental health condition and if those things aren't kind of looked at in the um the grand scheme of things if somebody's presenting with psychosis and we're just saying oh it's just because they've smoked weed what one time we're really not thinking a lot about um yeah like that person in their entirety their context their life experiences and things like that so It is a narrative that I've heard of, and I think it is quite dangerous because it reduces um, people's uh, experiences to, you know having smoked weed a few times or once, but then I, I do think that because there are question marks around the strength of um, you know, weed and the strains and things like that, that it's it's probably a more complex interaction than we can sort of say and put it down to ethnicity. But the fact that there are definitely higher rates of um, psychosis in, in people from the black community um, would point to there being other things that might be contributing to that because not everybody is, is smoking the same thing or even smoking at all so i don't know if that kind of
1: answers no it definitely does definitely does and it's an interesting one because um you get you get people that say um you know mental health in itself is an intangible like it's something that you know it's hard to define and it's hard to measure i mean we've discussed today that it's a spectrum so one thing that I've heard, I mean, one thing we like to do on our pod is just throw out all of the <laughs> conspiracy theories or whatnot that we hear and just, like, discuss it. So you get a lot of people that say, you know, like, therapists, um, like, their, their role is literally just to poke and poke and poke and then connect A and B and it, it equals F, but they're just going to say equals C because it, but it's in their interest too, and I don't want to awaken that because I'm dealing with it in a way that I feel is fine and whatnot. Basically, what would you say to those kind of people? And also, um, the role of a therapist itself—would you say that that is to that that they exist literally to help you understand yourself better, or why do we need therapists?
2: So um, the first part about—I guess it sounds like somebody who maybe is feeling ambivalent about learning more or like exploring in more detail you know what might be affecting how they feel or like n- n- thinking about you know different coping strategies is that is that the type of profile
1: yeah yeah definitely definitely
2: and I think that that, that again is, is something that, that that um I see um in my day-to-day clinical work and I would see in my private practice as well There's a Um, a general kind of ambivalence that people might present with when they're about to make massive changes. Like, do I really want this? Do I really want to have that level of understanding? What if I don't agree with it? There's lots of questions and lots of unknowns that can just make it really unnerving. And I do think that when people make that decision to see a therapist, that it's a massive step and that it should be kind of, um, you know, viewed as something that's like really important, really brave, a really kind of substantial um, and uh, important decision that that is likely to have a, a big impact on that person's life. So they need to be able to have that space to be kind of like questioning of that, is this something that I really want, if the, the kind of strategies that they're already using are actually quite effective, then it might be a case of just acknowledging that, you know, that these, these things that you're doing already are great, like you're, you're kind of, you're, you're smashing it, like in the context of all the things that have happened, you're doing really well. But often when people go to see a therapist, what they want to do is, as well as being ambivalent and maybe kind of wanting to hold on to some of the things that they're doing really well, is that they most likely will want to change some things so or they recognise that, that that some of their strategies aren't really working anymore. And sometimes the strategies or the, the kind of the resources that people have built up around them, they developed in a context where they really needed to use them. So at that time, it was really helpful, you know, to be really avoidant or to like isolate your from everyone but like over you know a couple of months maybe a couple of years if you continue to sort of do that and you know you're still feeling not very good or actually you want to feel a different way or you want to try something new there is going to have to be an an element of like you know give and take in that process of of, you know trying new things and and trusting somebody to to support you on that journey Um, i also think there's you know it, it, it's it's scary it's scary it can feel like it, un, it unravels you to to expose yourself to somebody and um, to share with them the things that you're probably probably working really hard to keep to yourself or to kind of um, and ultimately it will be the therapist's role to try and find a way of scaffolding and supporting you so that even if things do feel like they're for example, it's quite common for things to feel worse before they feel better. As long as you are aware of that, and there are appropriate things put in place to help you if you're feeling not very good, or you need like you need some extra support, that's all thought about. Then I think that it can give people the freedom to kind of engage with that process more freely. So I don't I don't know if that will be like a, a something that that works for everybody, but. At the same time, therapy won't be for everybody. For some people, it will be about just getting on with the practical things and not necessarily, you know, wanting or needing in that particular point in their life to to delve into previous experiences there are also different types of therapy approaches that will focus on different ways of working so not all of them will require you know in-depth analysis of your childhood experiences some of them are very much like focused in the present moment and trying to push you forward but also um as part of an assessment for example you there's there's going to have to be an element of telling the therapist a bit about why you're there and your experiences and you know things that you're doing at the moment so it's it's just it's one of those things you have to negotiate but um it, it is a process that requires some sort of give and take so that that's kind of what i would say to people that are if ambival- uh, ambivalent about it um does that <laughs> what you're
1: asking yeah yeah that, that's that's exactly you know that's exactly what we would want to would want to educate people about and yeah i think it makes complete sense especially the role of the therapist i think These things just, um, I feel like some people maybe are a bit lazy sometimes to look into the purpose of some of these these things. I mean, it's always there on um, Google and whatnot. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely agree. I think one question we had as well was what the actual difference is between a therapist, a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Is is that? (laughs) I think when you're not, when you're not, yeah, just you just always group it all together when you're not in the space. I feel. Mm.
2: Uh, It's something that actually people are constantly getting their head around because I think the way that mental health services, especially like in the NHS, public services are being funded and the way that they're structuring themselves, that people are kind of stepping into roles that they may not have had previously. Um, There might be more of an emphasis in one part of your role in one service and then if you move somewhere else, there's another emphasis. So that might seem like really abstract and really broad, but just to kind of put out there that it's completely understandable if lots of people if you're not in the industry if you don't quite understand differences because it isn't always that clear-cut um if you think about psychology as being like the the study of people so as a broad kind of area um of academia it's like studying people um, then you've got psychiatry which is about the study of mental Um, illness, if you will, or or psychopathology or difficulties in emotional well-being and health and the treatments and and, um, ways of either studying or evaluating the effectiveness of those treatments. Then you've got psychotherapy, which is kind of like more broadly all the different types of psychological therapies that can be offered. Um, so there's different approaches. Some people might have heard of cognitive behavioral therapy. Some people might have heard of family therapy. You know, like there's there's lots of different um, approaches. So if you think about the role of a psychiatrist um, as being... Psychiatrists are basically medical doctors who have done all of their medical training and then they've gone on to specialize in um, mental health. So. It takes, it's probably about 10 or 11 years for people to kind of get to that status of being a psychiatrist. There's lots, they're trained within the NHS, they're able to prescribe medication and they're concerned with the kind of overall well-being of somebody. So that includes their physical health and they'd be able to do, you know, if they needed to, a screen or to think about the impact of a medication on somebody's health and actually give guidance and advice around that so it's managed appropriately and and uh they the challenge is that they could be trained in a sort of therapy but generally they tend to be and i say challenge in terms of making it it then makes it less clear-cut what all psychiatrists do but if we just think about a bog standard general psychiatrist they will be the person that tends to prescribe medication they tend to diagnose illnesses um like uh, psychiatric illnesses or conditions and then they will also make recommendations about what kinds of treatments they should have in addition to medication or uh, instead of medication um, then if you think about a psychologist so a psychologist is a type of therapist So I'm a clinical psychologist, but there are also things like counselling psychologists, there are forensic psychologists, there are health psychologists, there are psychologists probably, you know, in every single field that you can think of, but there are lots of different psychologists. And um, what what kind of differentiates a clinical psychologist, for example, is that we tend to work with people who have presented with some sort of clinical diagnosis or some sort of impact on their day to day life that's, you know, because of. Their their emotional distress or emotional difficulties um, that they that they aren't able to live their lives in the way that they need to. So it is a clinical need that um, we're responding to, and we could offer because we're we're trained across what you the lifespan. We can work with. People of any age, we work across all the different types of mental health diagnoses. Um, clinical psychologists tend to work with people where there's more severe and enduring presentations. So like I was saying about trauma, um, they're, they're, they're most commonly found in like different health settings, um, but can also be found in the community. So there's there's, there's lots of um, variety in what a clinical, clinical psychologist um, can be doing. But um, our training is basically you have to do a three year, your undergrad, I did mine in psychology, I can tell you a bit more about that later, but three years of your undergrad and then you also have to do a three year um, doctoral training where you do placements and you learn how to do, you know, um, different sort of therapeutic approaches and you have to do quite a lot of academic um, submissions. So. Um, In addition to that, you also have to have like relevant experience. So before you do your doctorate, you need to have demonstrated that you understand the NHS, you understand how to work with people, that you've got a basic level of kind of therapeutic training. So some people do masters and other courses in between. But essentially, you're, you're a doctor, but not a medically trained doctor. So you'd be thinking more about somebody's emotional well-being. Um, and you might think about things like lifestyle factors and other things that can impact on how someone feels and try and work with them or uh, their professional network but it's very different from the role of a psychiatrist because of that the medical training it's just a different type of person you would be seeing and then you've got therapists who that they'll have you might have somebody who just specializes in one type of therapy psychologists are trained to work across lots of different therapies so you kind of get a the aim is to have more of a holistic experience because you have someone that's drawing on different theories and ways of working, but you might have someone that's trained in, in one way of working. So it could just be that um, you would like someone that just does cognitive behavioral therapy and then you have a cognitive behavioral therapist or somebody who focuses on only on working with families or somebody that only works with children. So there's there's different Within that, there's different types of therapists, but we're all regulated and managed under different um, organisations. So that's the thing. If you're looking for a therapist um, to be kind of that psychologists will be held to account by a board or a body and the British Psychological Society, but also um, HCPC um that we're we're kind of monitored on how we practice and we've got guidance and on ways to work not all therapists will kind of have the same accreditation or the same background so that, that there are differences but it, it depends on um what you're looking for so yeah <laughs> does that answer your
0: question
1: <laughs> definitely no no that's yeah, great no, yeah, no. that's great yeah that answers
0: Well, what I wanted to go to, I wanted to go back to very quickly, um, you mentioned that sometimes the research suggests that we are more susceptible to some of these illnesses or issues than, um, let's say, our Caucasian counterparts. Um, Why is that? Is is it a case where maybe because we're in a Western world which is dominated by the Caucasian people, and if we were to go to maybe Africa, we wouldn't see those similar like rates or why that we have, we, we are more likely to get schizophrenia or, 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 you know, anxiety than our Caucasian counterparts. What's, what's the cause behind that, in your opinion?
2: Um, so I like to use a model of, you know, like I was saying before, My I'm interested in like, making sense of why somebody might be presenting with what a particular diagnosis or set of symptoms. Um, And if you, you can, you know, whoever's listening can also Google this at at some point, but there's um, a psychologist who is known as um, Bronfenbrenner, that's Uri Bronfenbrenner. And he came up with this uh, model um, to make sense of how different people um, or how how different things impact on the way that we feel. If I say that very broadly, there is much more to it, but you can kind of look at the the kind of like individual factors. So if we st- it's like um, concentric circles. So if we think of the first like inside bit of the circle um, as being the sort of individual factors, so the things that that like somebody's gender, somebody's age their, you know, predisposition to things because of their health, or, you know, like, that's, that's like the first part of the, the puzzle. So if we think about for black people, um, if we're honing in specifically on somebody's ethnicity or race, however you want to construct it, that, that just by being black, you're going to be susceptible to a, a lot more adversity or difficult experiences when you are, like you said, in a predominantly white um, environment or country, um those sorts of things the discrimination the kind of impact on for example the way that you view yourself or the way that you view the world um that's going to have an impact on 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 your emotional well-being um what there's there's also i guess um if, if we kind of move out to the what they call the micro system and how that impacts the net circle outwards. You've got things like, you know, family and friends and school and, you know, other services and how they all kind of impact on how you feel. Um, And when we think about, um, you know, the black community, it's really difficult to, you don't want to homogenize and say everybody has exactly the same experiences. There are lots of black people who um, come from families where problems are spoken about very openly and there's space to kind of think about therapy and, you know, so I, I don't want to kind of deny the um, uh, experience of people who do, who do have families that come um, that, that are set up in that way um, but if we think about um, for example if if families are dis- black families are disproportionately affected by um, discrimination and racism and that ends up affecting somebody's employment opportunities, their opportunities to earn money or to have a good sense of their identity and self, like to feel empowered within their community, for example, that's going to impact on the whole system. So not just like an individual person, but everybody in that family is going to be affected by that. If the, if you're kind of living in an environment that actually isn't really conducive to you getting those opportunities or where you are trying to get opportunities, you're being turned away because of things like your ethnicity that's the unifying factor and um, then of course that's going to impact on the, the types of things that you feel that you'll be good at or the the kind of view that you have of the um, future how ho- hopeful you feel how motivated you feel um you know so that i i, I don't want to kind of labor the point in going through every single factor but essentially if you look outside of someone's micro system so that you know like the family friends, and even school, like you, you mentioned as well, Sam, the kind of, if your school hadn't taken a particular view and supported you in a particular way, your outcome, who knows like how that would have affected you kind of long term. So how how schools and systems basically um, influence the way that we, um, you know, uh, engage with our difficulties or how we make sense of them. If you're viewed as a problem child, as opposed to someone that needs some support, your outcomes are going to be are different um, and then in the kind of uh just thinking about the services narrative as well if we're act, trying to access services early so like trying to get to our gp and say oh i actually feel like i'm, I'm not feeling very good i want some help around this and um, there's research that suggests that we're not kind of viewed in the same way as our, our white counterparts in the sense that so, um, GPs tend not to view us as being psychologically minded or wanting to access therapy or because we're there's a sense that, you know, maybe it might be about how our difficulties are communicated in those early consultations, but there's certainly there isn't that same kind of willingness or motivation to refer people, black people on for like um, therapy at the earlier stages and it's first kind of developing like difficulties developing um, so you've got all these things kind of I would say effectively going against you um, and then it just kind of expands out into like you know the general society how how different services engage with you what you see in the mass media you know, different um, policies and how they affect you in a kind of local way, like what services are provided or what opportunities are given for you to really grow and develop. Um, And then then you think about, you know, attitudes and uh, like ideology. So like the wider culture of um, being in a, you know, black community, the kinds of views that are held more broadly within the black community, but also outside of the black community. So there there are things like stigma, um, there's Just a a general sense that actually speaking to other people about your problems is is a bad thing to do. And the more that's kind of ingrained in you, the less you will be likely to kind of at those earlier stages actually open up and try and access the sort of support that you might find. Um, helpful but also there isn't an opportunity to acknowledge when you're really struggling with the kind of the reality of being a black person in a a predominantly white um, country that there are lots of challenges that just kind of get swept under the carpet as like being normal life and actually they're hugely traumatic they are you know they're things that people again if you were to really lay them down and actually analyze well how has this shaped how you feel about Um, you know the police or how is it shaped how you feel about women or you know all these sorts of things when you lay them out they have a massive impact because they don't get spoken about it kind of has to go somewhere so effectively that there's 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 probably more to say about this than um i'm gonna go into in this um yeah yeah i can imagine yeah i
0: can imagine So, so it seems to me like like in a nutshell uh, and actually, because we are oppressed and it is a Caucasian-oriented um, world, that oppression then turns to manifest into mental illness or mental uh, defu- dysfunction because of the kind of oppression around us. And because our worldview is already tainted based on the kind of system we're put in in the beginning, yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah
2: essentially. So then, but
0: I'd, I'd like to challenge you on that. Oh, sorry, yeah, go on. Yes, I, I was going to challenge you on that because I do feel like if we were to take the Caucasian out of briefly, I also feel like even in the black community alone, I do feel like, um, like black men are placed, you know, there is a lot of pressure on black men anyway to be the provider, to be the protector and so on, and I think that's why we see a lot of huge rates in the kind of black illness, in the kind of mental illness between black men alone, and you made a very good point in that there's a stigma with communicating and telling people about your particular mental issues or what you're going through, whereas I guess and the Asians, they have a great support system where they've got a community-based support system where it's common for everyone to talk about each other's problems. And I guess with Caucasians, they're often opening to each other as well when it comes to, you know, sharing the burden of their mental load. Whereas I guess in a in black particular culture, there's almost that kind of taboo of telling someone that, okay, you're not feeling well mentally or you're currently down. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I think I, I don't actually think that's in, like um much different from the views that I have. It's quite it is quite without going through like there's so many different factors and they will interact and affect people in different ways. But yeah, definitely if you think about intersectionality like the different parts of somebody's identity, the way that they intersect and impact on their experience of the world because of how people view them or interact with them, that's definitely going to have uh, an impact on um how much people want to engage with um uh, therapy but also how able they feel to engage with therapy or like the kinds of distress that they're experiencing who's going to be able to relate to them who's going to be able to support them and hold them in mind i do think though there is um, a kind of a a kind of broader like so in addition to like cultural norms and um ideas there's things like religion you know that people um will turn to what is kind of viewed as the most or the highest context or the most important thing in their family or in their their own experiences and i don't want to get too controversial in this conversation but i, I do think there's an element of sometimes people feeling they have to choose between one thing or another as opposed to having things that complement um each other the same with you're saying something about kind of community and having um opportunities to be able to talk to different people There there is there is a kind of growing um, demand for community approaches group approaches people kind of being seen together as like you know healing from this kind of collective trauma Um, but it 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 needs to grow it's still in its infancy so people might not be aware in the same way they might not know that there are black therapists out there that are eager to support people in their community um, that there are black male therapists out there who are able to draw on not just their lived experience but also using alternative and mainstream um theories and practices to support um people that look like them so there's i'd say that in terms of the 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 things that that might contribute to people having different experiences or different difficulties in in terms of mental health um that yeah of of course somebody's gender like the story the the narratives around black men and the idea of being seen as weak or being seen as violent and therefore too threatening or too frightening or too dangerous to be to be interacted with in a kind of human and compassionate way of course that's going to affect the 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 the, your emotional well-being it's going to cause a lot more distress than it will um resolve any issues so yeah I, i completely cosign that I think there's lots of things that if you break them down will affect how people are uh, viewed but also how they feel
1: I think I, th- I definitely agree and I think the point you made about um awareness of black fur is actually existing <laughs> is a huge one and it's actually it's so important because um like we were speaking before we we started recording Fabienne, that um you know 99% of the guests we've had on our podcast are also black and generally British. Um, because you know, a lot of our target audience are black and British. And we also want to appeal to different people that will see this person as a potential role model and whatnot. So that comes that's born out of the fact that um we believe that, you know, people like relatability, people like stories, people like to see themselves in people. And I feel like that can be um transferred into therapy as well. So like you're gonna feel more comfortable if you're a black man that has all of these um, things said about your like other black men that you know they're violent they're this they're that you're gonna feel like if you're talking to a black male therapist then he wouldn't have to um, advise you or or anything from the angle of um, theory he Mm -hmm. has also lived that experience so he will also be able to say look This is my personal experience and this is, you may be different, but you may not, you may also have the same experience as me kind of thing. So I feel like if that awareness was out there, that black therapists do exist and also there's also a career path to becoming a black therapist, because maybe there is, maybe there aren't as many black therapists as there are um, white therapists, which is why people don't know. And also, like, I was speaking about me, how I had my anger management with a therapist back in school. That was a white woman. And to be fair, that worked well for me. Like, I liked the woman. She was cool. Like, she got me. She was all right. But yeah. do we? is there a conversation to be had about, in this situation, maybe we don't need the person to look like us. Maybe there's benefit from having someone that's coming from the outside, looking in kind of thing. So I think that's that's a big point to make. And another one, quickly, is... is um, is a socio-economic factor because I think therapy is not free from what I understand and obviously people that live in um, maybe difficult circumstances, they don't maybe have the money, may think that, you know, therapy is a rich man's thing, kind of thing, so I don't know, these are things that maybe solutions need to be found and then we get more people going into those spaces and potentially having life-saving talks that help their mental health in my opinion. (laughs)
2: Do you know what I, I really like that you made the point about the therapist not needing to look like you. Cause I think there will be like people who are kind of, you know, cringing at the idea of having, you know, to see somebody that doesn't look like them and thinking, I really, really want to see a black therapist. And there will also be people that are like the idea of seeing somebody that reminds them of themselves, or there are too many similarities, or, you know, that sometimes, you know, as, as a therapist, working with people who look like me, there are a lot of assumptions that come up in the work that are, we have some, you know, very, it, it, yeah, like the people will just assume a lot of things about me. And there's a, there's a kind of um, complexity in deciding how much to reveal about yourself and um, how helpful or unhelpful that will be for the person that's in the chair because they're not there to learn about you necessarily. They're there because they need a space and they want someone to help them think. But I do also think that that kind of opportunity to meet with someone where you don't have to kind of really break down some of the basic um, aspects of your experience, or you don't have that fear necessarily that they're not going to understand, you know, something that's really important to you, um, that that can be, you know, uh, that can reduce quite a lot of anxiety. But it, at the end of the day it's about finding somebody that you have like a a good connection with and sometimes it means you know meeting a few different people if you have got access to the means to go to a therapist privately you have got a bit more um power and choice over who you see um but there's lots of things that you would have to be kind of like testing out for yourself like what feels comfortable for you whether you want to see a man you want to see a woman you want to see someone who doesn't um sort of form to um, gender binary, like that, that kind of thing would be more important um, to, to sort of make the therapeutic relationship um, work for you. Um, the point that you, I'm just thinking about your second point, um, which was about the socio-economic impact and like people not necessarily being able to access therapy and feeling like it's for rich people. Um, it's kind of as somebody who, you know, I've, I have I set up my own practice and I receive inquiries every now and then and sometimes people, are, I think they are put off by the cost of therapy and sometimes it's because that, you know, as I said, I, I'm trained across multiple um, like therapeutic approaches and I work across the lifespan and I work in a particular way that you, you might not get in other types of therapists. So I, that has to kind of be acknowledged in that. Um, setting up of a service it's it's not we're not all one big blob of a therapist we all do very different things so it it depends on what you're actually looking for and sometimes the the price might then tell you or maybe I'm looking for something else or you know maybe I really want this but I need to have a conversation and negotiate that but what I, I have found is um there's a, there's a real pressure as a black therapist to um, reduce the the rate of the the, the services that I offer um, and it's quite complicated because it, it means something about um, how black people are viewed when they're in a professional context as well like how do you Um, you know, develop your own reputation or be able to have a sense of yourself as being worthy within a white profession if everyone that um, contacts you is asking you to bring the price down. But then having, you know, being somebody that is from that community, from the black community and thinking actually financially, if things were the other way around, or if, you know, I would probably be doing the same thing and what does that mean? So there is an element of kind of um there is a there's a financial implication to requesting a particular type of service, and I don't think you can get around that. Some people will charge less, they'll have like low cost slots, they'll have sliding scales, so they're the kinds of um uh, therapists or um services that if you if you are financially kind of restricted, that you may want to kind of seek out um and, and see how you get on. There's also a kind of argument that we have more generally in the NHS about basically when people it's different because in the NHS it's it's free so people are accessing a service at, you know it's it, at the point of entry they're not having to pay for it um, but sometimes it's not the most important thing for somebody so it's not to say just because you don't have money that therapy won't be helpful for you um, at all that's definitely not what I'm trying to say but it might be that for some people there are other things that might be more important that they. You know would like to focus on or might need support around first or you know when we're trying to make things more accessible for people i think the thing that gets missed out is how do we improve people's lives so that they can actually afford services that are sort of designed for them there's a bigger argument for actually like on a national level addressing um, social inequalities and making sure that people are able to afford these kinds of things and live better lives generally so maybe they they wouldn't necessarily need therapy to use it in the same way Um, but yeah in terms of the the cost argument I think um, yeah, certainly seeking out there are lots of charities and lots of um, individual practitioners that offer lower cost slots um but negotiating with your therapist and asking them can I, can I like or explaining your situation and seeing what's possible also is a, a good way of, of seeing if you can still work with someone that you maybe otherwise thought you couldn't access.
1: definitely
0: yeah, yeah perfectly <laughs> perfectly, uh, perfectly understand that so i know we talk about stigma very briefly for those who can't for those who can um for those for those who can afford therapy mm-hmm. and who are listening and maybe they're on a the fence about maybe um the, the way of the way of dealing with stigmas versus the way of actually going for therapy what does the therapy what does the actually do like from me for a therapist session like how does it work now I have a mentor who I guess plays that kind of role even though not maybe um uh, medically qualified to but I guess it's someone who maybe talks to your problem and everything. but in terms of what a person gets like how does a session work like yeah talk to me about what therapist actually does in a particular session Mm -hmm. so
2: um everyone's going to work really differently unfortunately that means that i won't be able to give you like um an exact like uh, like catch-all answer but i do like that you've mentioned something about having other people in your network that you could you know that that sort of create that space for you because there will be it's not so things that are therapeutic don't always take the form of like actual therapy. It could be, you know, spending time with loved ones or having somebody outside of your immediate family that you can confide in. But the difference is that if you're doing that with someone who isn't medically trained, if they are they become like issues, or you know that you you might need um sort of specific boundaries or a contract in place to really make that a safe enough space for you to make use of it um, um and benefit from it. Um. So. Essentially what you would be getting from a therapist that you might not necessarily get from like a friend or a mentor is that arrangement, that kind of negotiation of how you're going to use the space kind of really, it, there's a, there's a hope that it will be tailored for that person. So, um, it's, it shouldn't be a kind of one size fits all anyway, but, um, in an, in an initial session or a consultation, for example. You, the, the therapist should really be trying to do a bit of an assessment get a sense of the main difficulties how that person uses the space what their experiences have been before like just just getting a sense of what what has led them to what um wanting therapy at that time and then creating a bit of a plan with them um and again depending on how the person works it might be about having you know regular sessions every week um you might have an hour or 50 minutes can be the standard amount of time. Um, and just thinking about what that person's goals are. So trying to make sure that you create a space that is safe and containing. Sometimes people want like um, strategies, like they just want something really concrete. Tell me what to do in this situation. And some therapists won't do that. They will sit with you and help you to kind of arrive at your own conclusions. Or they will kind of, you know, basically think and link back to other experiences that you may have had and try some hypotheses or think with you about why there might be a desire to do one thing over another and, and just kind of giving you a bit of space from the difficulty that you've come with so that you can think about it from a different perspective but therapists aren't there to do the work for you they're there to support you in the thinking so it's another head, another head that's there to you know be there and and think with you but also um to sometimes it would be about giving very clear guidance and imparting some um, advice but um that basically it's it's a conversation with a purpose that should leave you feeling somewhat enriched afterwards or moved from some position sometimes you might feel better sometimes you might feel worse so there's it's kind of a relationship that develops and um that where you're able to maybe be more vulnerable be more open because they don't they don't they shouldn't really be sharing too much about themselves. It's a space for you, somebody that's there to be alongside you and
0: support you in your thinking. Oh, that's that's perfect. Sam, did you want to add
1: something to that? Honestly, oh, it's fantastic. You're dropping gens to Fabienne, so <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> um, we can move on to COVID. We can keep this um, pretty short, but essentially, um, we just wanted to have a brief discussion about what you think um, the impact of us being locked down for such a long period of time will be? Um, we spoke to someone earlier this week um, and she was telling us like, you know, from a biology from a biology perspective, um, literally humans are meant to be around each other. There's literally science behind it. So just to see us being kept apart, it's not, it's not going to end well, is it? <laughs> so um, yeah, what do you think?
2: I have really mixed views about this because on the one hand there's been a real acknowledgement like en masse that the lives that we were living before were probably in many ways quite toxic so when I say before like before Um, covid and the lockdown measures were put in place it's really forced us to sit down and think about what's important to us and whether that's in the context of being really frightened and really worried about our health and the health of other people or if it's about actually noticing the benefits of being indoors and not having to kind of you know live such a fast lifestyle obviously that's not going to apply to everybody but i think you know just to kind of counter that that sort of idea that you know lockdown is in itself is inherently bad for society um i'm not yeah i'm not sure that i i would commit to that view or that it'd be detrimental for us to have been in this in this process but i would balance that with you know people are in different situations Um, Some people are going to have been really badly affected by COVID, um, whether that's through, um, you know, themselves physically um, experiencing COVID, um, knowing people that have experienced it, losing people to COVID. Like, there's a whole range of of different experiences that are going to have come out, which will leave people feeling very different and very impacted upon by um, once we kind of step back into whatever post lockdown life looks like so there's certainly the element of kind of grief and loss and anticipating people's loss and grief and you know things being just change in general people really struggling to kind of adjust and cope to a a new way of, of being um, I also think that there's going to probably be uh, like people feeling very anxious about coming into contact with, um, COVID, like with the virus and with um, other people that may or may not have the virus. And people might be feeling like more kind of health anxiety symptoms, worrying about their health and the health of other people, um, going to quite extreme measures maybe to protect themselves. But it does feel reasonable given that we've had such mixed messages about how to stay, like steer clear from the virus. So can I people will just generally be feeling a lot more ans- anxious and feeling maybe a bit like they, they're not able to um, uh, take control in any way of the spread of the virus apart from staying indoors but like generally I think people will feel like there's not much else that they can do it's, it's probably like you know just a, 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 an overwhelming feeling of being frightened um, but then I also think people being isolated you know that there's there's a lack of um Social connectedness, which we know is it impacts on how people feel about themselves and sort of feel generally, it it makes your mood dip if you're not around other people. Um, but if you're not sort of following a routine, not getting a sense of achievement, so people tend to get that from things like going to work or just doing similar things that mark the beginning of the day, mark the end of the day. If that's all kind of blurred into one thing, it's really disorienting for people and it can create more. feelings of low mood or like feeling quite just all over the place which which isn't great for your emotional well-being it, affects, it can affect your sleep it can affect your eating like it, it's just like it's multi kind of systemic it affects all kinds of things if you're not in a, a routine or having a sense of achievement or doing things that you enjoy if you're just like behind the screen most of the time or you know not going out to the clubs that you used to go to going out to eat where you used to eat doing the things that maybe help to regulate your mood that's definitely going to have an impact on your overall kind of well-being so in the main those sorts of things if if people are really lacking in that they they will be more likely to struggle but there are also ways of kind of in, incorporating routine um achievement and pleasure in your kind of day-to-day life that can kind of offset that a little bit but yeah those are the sorts yeah, of
0: that's, things. A, that's a very yes yeah the very uh, yeah, uh that, that's a very good point in terms of um having a routine and a sense of achievement. I think people tend to see their mental health deteriorate um, in lockdown when they can't, then when they're starting to lose um, the concept of day and night, when for example, they, know what day, they don't know what day it is, and like they're staying in bed all day, or they're being they're like, not sluggish, but there's not really a sense of routine. I think what helps me a is like, having a sense of routine and having some goals I'm trying to achieve by the end of the week. So like, on Sunday evening, I'm gonna set my goals for the week. And that way I know that, come next Saturday when I do my review, I've got a sense of achievement, okay, even though I'm at home, I've achieved these kind of things. And it don't have to do anything drastic, like quitting, I've or something, it can be something simple, like maybe doing my laundry on this particular day, or checking up on these particular groups of people on this particular day, or, um, you know, reading the Bible on this day. And that way I can look back, and there's a psychological effect of maybe just the idea of just ticking off a to-do list. So even though the things aren't uh, incredible, or, like, they're not great in the grand scheme of things, the fact that I'm achieving what I set out to do helps my mental health. And that way I'm one of the people who's think maybe today's Friday when it's actually Wednesday and so on. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I, I think that that's a really good example, actually, of being able to like regulate yourself and attune yourself to the week and the day, like setting goals, because I'm not going to lie, I've definitely woken up and been like, what, is, what day is it? Is it Sunday or is it Thursday? I'm not sure. And that's just because I don't have the, the things that would mark my regular kind of routine, like to know that this is definitely a Thursday because these are the things I do on Thursday. So trying to create that is definitely important. But lifestyle factors i mean people you know have been advised encouraged to exercise encourage even like eating and drinking all of that's going to be thrown off people might be drinking more eating less or vice versa or a bit of both but um there's something about it just feeling like it's thrown people off that um that might be that's that's maybe the the kind of the thing that people will be noticing at the moment the long-term effects of that if if there is a kind of um a a way of of helping people to feel like they can safely you know get back to the things that they were doing before that's probably gonna alleviate some of their anxiety but even people's work situations there's so many people that have been furloughed so many people have uncertainty about their you know their financial situation that these sorts of things are realistic worries that are of course going to impact on how people feel and until they're managed I, I feel like it you know it would be unfair to assume once lockdown is finished that these things are just suddenly going to fix themselves there's an element of like you know anxiety that that needs to be like practically addressed at, like by external forces and factors so I think for a lot of people once that's done they will feel automatically a lot better um but yeah there there are other things that you can be doing if you're at home kind of like not sure what to do with your time? There's there's loads of stuff online. There's like I don't know if you're going to be linking things to different websites, but there there are some um, resources. Yeah,
0: we will. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What well, resources do have mind so that we could just put that at the bottom of the podcast episode for those listening? Sure. Uh, and then also, um, sad, oh, yeah, also, also, I was going to quickly um, mention that yeah, in terms of the goals, the goals don't have to be again anything like. Phenomenal. It could just be simple, I haven't checked on this person in this particular day, let me check up on that person, um, and so on. I haven't texted this person, let me text them, I haven't, you know, done my homework or something, you know, something like that. Um, and also, I know, even sometimes maybe just change your scene. Um, there's a huge difference between maybe staying in your room all day to just chilling in your bedroom for one hour or going outside, walking around for the garden. Sometimes that change of scene tends to kind of pervert, you know, provide a bit more mental stimulus. Uh, what I was quickly going to ask was, I know you mentioned a good point about um, post-lockdown. Like, like Lockdown aside, what are some of the best ways to keep mentally healthy and overcome adverse like, mental illness? Um, I think it, it's, they're quite or are similar. You
2: gonna say,
0: or are you, 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 you going to say Valium?
2: A valiant. Oh no, no. <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna throw out there, but for, you know, for, for some people it, that's that's gonna help them. Um I would say my my go-to when I'm kind of assessing and like thinking about where people are currently at has always been to think about lifestyle factors so like are you getting enough sleep are you eating enough drinking enough exercising you know those are the kinds of like basic life things that need to be addressed and they can drastically affect how you feel um are you consuming like any substances like are you drinking alcohol that could be affecting your sleep it could be affecting your mood so just to start off with like the real basics just to make sure that you're not kind of apologizing and saying oh it's actually you know you're really like you're presenting as someone who has depression when actually it might be that you need to just make some minor tweaks here and there um also getting into a routine so you you have that that mix of different um activities as I was saying before like the um getting a sense of achievement routine and um pleasure as the basic kind of things in your day-to-day life and that includes like having social contact and and things like that Um, i would also say uh doing things that are really meaningful to you so trying to figure out for yourself what do you love doing what do you like doing and at the moment it might be hard to do some of those things but what's the next best thing what's the closest thing that you can do um, to to help you kind of scratch that itch if that makes sense like get get you to um enjoy something um thinking about our identity can be a bit complex but like trying to map out something i really love doing every now and then is mapping out the things that are really kind of stand out to me about myself or things that are kind of important about my heritage or things that are important about me um in in a as least narcissistic way as possible um but essentially trying to um connect with the things that are important so I've recently discovered that I love baking like connect with that is that something that lifts you up is it a part of your identity you know those are the sorts of things that I think you can be doing that can be quite playful that you can do like if you're noticing that your mood is dipping, but you're not sort of in a really, really dark place. If you're in a dark place and you think actually, I need to access support more urgently, you always can still contact your GP and you can go to A&E if you're worried about like acting on any thoughts or feelings to to hurt yourself or to hurt other people, that would be the kind of go-to, but sort of day-to-day managing the kind of ups and downs of the day, having things to look forward to, um, you know, trying to basically look after yourself be kind to yourself and those are kinds of really good things to start off with and then yeah I I guess without going into a full treatment plan (laughs) um, it might uh, feel like yeah (laughs) there's a there's a lot of other things um, that can be said but yeah
0: I guess we know who's finishing all the flour then with your bakery
1: (laughs) Um. (laughs) you know what (laughs) you know what? yeah it's so it's so funny so so the clear theme that I'm getting here is um because I agree with it as well is um like be purpose-driven like do stuff that um like be kind to yourself do stuff that you like doing and um Fabian you don't know but like um basically my dad passed away from covid six weeks ago very suddenly so I've been getting a lot yeah so I've been getting a lot of people contacting me um just asking how I am how I'm coping And I'm coping okay. I'm coping okay because, like, there's the religion aspect that I I just know that he's he's okay where he is because he's a good man. And there's the other aspect of I'm being kind to myself, like you said. Like I'm, I'm really um, throwing myself into things that I like doing. So, um, so one of my boys rang me and he's like, "What have you been doing? Like you've just been home. Like no one's been able to see you all of that." And I was saying that, bro, I've been being creative. Like I've been thinking of things that i could do for his legacy i've been thinking of things that i could do that like would would make him proud and stuff like that and i've also been um devoting like a lot of time to like understanding covid because like the way i am is that i don't i don't want to run away from what killed him i want to understand every single aspect of this thing so like i've been reading articles speaking to people blah 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 and that's helped me so my the same boy was saying to me like rah sam i can't lie to you that's not 'Cause that's not like you're not actually coping. You're you're not really addressing it, like you're not allowing yourself to feel sad and stuff. But I don't feel like I'm stopping myself from feeling sad. I'm just doing what comes natural to me. I'm letting my body do what it wants. And what it wants to do is is have a purpose, is to keep busy, is to do things that I feel like will benefit. So I feel like like and also, um well, we won't really have a lot of time to go into in this pod, but like this thing has affected um our community a lot. And I know like quite a few people personally that have also lost their dads to COVID. So they've reached out to me directly and been like, Ra, Sam, like, how are you coping? And I've said the same thing to them, I'm keeping busy. So that's just one thing that I'll, that's just to add to everything that you guys said, which I completely agree with. I feel like doing things that you feel is like is purpose-driven um, has helped me a lot. So yeah, whoever wants to take that can also <laughs> add that to their nuggets.
0: And- and even if it's not purpose driven, like, again, it doesn't have to be anything that's going to actually provide any value. It can be, okay, I want to kill X amount of people called call duty today. I want to go to this particular level in Pokemon. It doesn't have to necessarily be anything that's going to provide great value. It could just be something that you set your mind to do. And because you set your mind to do it, the chemicals in your brain then say, cool, I've achieved something today. Even though even that achievement is actually nothing, but it's still, you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, which is why I gave the example of maybe calling a friend. So nothing really valuable there but if you're not doing it for value you're just doing it to catch on with a friend that is still that's still provide therapeutic um uh, you know benefits yeah
2: definitely wow thank you for sharing that I'm, I'm sure there'll be lots of people that really connect with what you said but also yeah like it, there is there is a um a temptation to be like super busy and super productive during this time i know that there's this kind of like This bubble that we're now living in where people are posting all kinds of things on social media and because you know we're we're kind of now glued to all of our screens as much as we're probably trying not to be but that's how we connect with each other and so there is just something about taking time for yourself and being cautious about what you're consuming and not feeling under like any real pressure it's just having some ideas should you want to do things differently that you can fall back on and and kind of see how they fit for you and make you know whatever changes feel comfortable but yeah
1: it sounds like you guys have got quite a few ideas 100 <laughs> percent, cool and then just to end off we wanted to focus on you dr Fabian. so um basically we wanted to just ask like a bit about your career journey today um just high level like how you got to where you are and again we want more black therapists we want more black psychologists do you know what i mean so what would you say to Like someone that's thinking about going into that career path um, what advice would you have for them and I know we're gonna share links and stuff but if you can say anything like by verbally then we'd appreciate
2: it um, no worries so I'll start off just by talking about um, what I did from like sixth form upwards because I think that that's the time when people are making decisions about their careers and When I was, even when I was in secondary school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I really liked the idea of going to uni, but... I also feel like I was steered in that direction by my parents. So it was just always going to be the thing that I was doing and trying to figure out what I was doing there was the next challenge. So um at X Form I did what's called the International Baccalaureate. I don't know if anyone's heard of that, but it's essentially an international qualification because at the time I was w- wanting to keep my options open, go to maybe study in another country and have a way, a vehicle to do that really, like a, a um set of qualifications that could be um, recognized somewhere else so i did that and i I chose really broad subjects so in the end i I, I sort of came away from sixth form thinking i'm I'm still not really sure what i want to do and that whole process up to like applying for uh, for unis and things like that i still sort of really struggled but i i decided on psychology because um I'd studied philosophy at um sixth form, I'd done maths, I did biology, like these are and I did English as well. Um and these are kinds of like, you know, if you mush them all together, they're like the the foundations for psychology, but I didn't actually study psychology at sixth form, so you don't have to. Um but yeah, um for me, I feel like the subjects I chose helped me to go on to that quite smoothly. Um, I also, in my personal life, um, so my mum has sickle cell and um, when I was growing up, I just found that that, you know, experience of somebody having a parent that was really not very well and not really feeling particularly informed about how to, you know, manage as a family or feeling supported by local services. Again, I grew up in a predominantly white area there wasn't really much in terms of infrastructure to like support us through that experience Um, so growing up with you know a range of different things I'm sure again a lot of people will be able to relate to that experience but um certainly feeling that like I, I wanted to be able to help other people or having some kind of like desire to learn more about families and supporting families seemed to come out of that so um, that that felt you know like an important part of my experience and, and having a family member as well who um, had quite a severe stroke um, and seeing the impact of that on them I think all of those things just sort of led me kind of quite swiftly down the path of psychology. Um, I did a general degree in the University of Kent in Canterbury, um, and I got a first in my degree. And the reason I'm saying that is definitely not to boast or brag. But there is an element in the kind of this career path of having achieved quite good grades that needs to be kind of put out there from the offset, like, Going into um, clinical psychology is quite competitive. It's very academic. There's also, you know, a huge clinical aspect. So you have to be comfortable speaking to people, thinking with people who are very distressed and, you know, being able to um, draw on lots of theory and lots of information and use all of that to support your work. So. Basically, um, that, that's a consideration if you're thinking about going down this path that you will need to um, get good grades. But also um, there are things that you can do, like doing a master's or doing other courses, should you either want to you know, convert onto psychology at a later point or you'd like to get some more learning and teaching under your belt. And that uh, is another way. But back to what I did, I worked, after I um, did my degree, I worked as an account manager for BT for about two years, and it was a bit of a kind of random role. I couldn't find any sort of um, experience in the NHS to to help me in my um, psychology career, so I just went on and did something that I felt would Kind of helped me business acumen wise and like earn some money and um the accounts that i was working with they were nhs accounts so it just meant that i was able to get a different kind of perspective into the nhs and use that to understand how services work and how they're funded and stuff um, I then, after I left BT, I was working as a volunteer for the Samaritan. I just I had like two years of basically working like really strange hours and for lots of different companies at the same time. So I volunteered as a Samaritan listener. So when people call up and they're feeling distressed, I would have been somebody on the, the end of the line. Um, and they offer really good training and support in that um, organization. So I was there. Um, I also did domiciliary support work, which is going into people's homes and providing them with personal care. Sometimes it means staying over and being with them 24 hours a day. Other times it's kind of just doing respite care. So that's like working in their homes at, at night when somebody's parents need to be get some sleep or something like that. Um, so I did that. And then I also worked in the NHS as a bank support worker, which, again, was much a lot of personal care. But. Being, being there for people just if they needed someone to talk to. Um, I worked as an honorary assistant psychologist and people on this career path will probably appreciate that there are not many assistant psychologist roles um, out there and there's often opportunities to work for free um, in exchange for obviously really invaluable experiences and opportunities. Um, so I, I was fortunate enough in some ways to get that role Um, working with people who had their very first episode of psychosis. Um, So I was in an early interventions team in Essex. Um, And I also worked with women just before they had their babies and just after, like up to a year and a half after they'd had their babies in a perinatal team. Um, So I was just like providing some containment support and things um, during that period for them um after that i mean this this is quite i'm almost halfway through but it's there's quite a lot of stuff and it's just important to highlight that that it isn't necessarily always straightforward journey and you do sometimes have to be quite creative but um, the next role that i took on was a psychological wellbeing practitioner and that's basically working with people who present with low to moderate levels of anxiety or low mood um, and we were using CBT to support them. So I did some training um, and uh, yeah, took on that role. And then I got a place um, at the University of East London for my clinical training as a trainee clinical psychologist. Um, that's the three-year doctoral program um, where you're trained across the lifespan and to work with lots of different um, presentations and needs and disabilities. Um, so I, I was there um, from 2015 to 2018 and I did my thesis there on what mental health services are doing to improve outcomes for black service users. So that was a really big project and you can find it online um, if you're interested. But it's, it's, it's basically thinking about the policies and how we need to um, basically overhaul all the systems um, to, to kind of improve the lives of um, the black community. Um, And then after I finished my training, I uh, got a job working where I am now, which is with children and young people where there's been a disclosure of sexual abuse. So it's quite a specific type of trauma. And we work with their families and their sort of networks to provide like a, a really holistic package of care. So lots of different professionals involved. Um, and then I've recently set up my private practice um, so that's basically where I'm at in my journey <laughs> it's a very long journey um, but happy to answer that, that journey is great that,
0: that journey is dope that journey is dope um, that journey is dope what, what I was going to say was okay so you mentioned uh, you're doing your own thing you've got your own practice yeah. and um, you've got some here nice, uh, where can we find you what are your socials for those listening who want to reach in touch to you, who wanna who want to contact you, or those who wanna maybe uh, uh have a maybe get a quote by a practice or just want to talk to you because you're obviously you're a fine your lady more for herself as well. So uh where, where can we find you socially?
2: Socially. So I do have a a professional Instagram account, um which is uh Dr. Fabienne Palmer. Um my name is quite <laughs> long. I can spell it out, or I think we could just leave a link to that. But you can find me on Instagram. Um, I don't have any content. Yeah, right spell it
0: out, please. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so it up, it's please,
2: yeah. C-R, um, and then F for Foxtrot. A B I E N N E P A L M E R. So at Doctor Fabian Palmer. Um, but you can contact me if you want to send me a direct message. I've also got a link to one of my um, uh, entries on a counselling directory so that I'm, I'm online. If you just type in my name, Dr Fabienne Palmer, um you'll be able to find um, the, the different directories that I'm on. You can also email me at inquiries with an E, so E-N-Q-U-I-R-I-E-S at therapeutic-connections.co.uk. Um, and, yeah, if you have any questions, anything else would be helpful to talk about, just, just contact me directly there.
1: Cool. Yeah, honestly, guys, do uh, reach out to her. I think Fabian, thank you so much for um, coming on. It would have been great to, honestly, we could have talked all night, but because um, of time, we had to end it there. But honestly, um, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Um, we'll be sending you this podcast when... And it drops just so you know you can share wherever you want and whatnot. So, yeah, thanks again. Um, for listeners, um, follow the podcast at My City Podcast on everything: um, Twitter, SoundCloud, um, Spotify, Instagram, YouTube, everything. Um, follow me personally, Sam underscore Luco, on everything. Uh, follow Iray at, Iray, what is follow, me at follow, follow me
0: on, on Twitter at IrayLewa, which is I R. A-Y-L-I-W-A and follow me on Instagram at iray.ae which is IRE. Follow me on Instagram at iray.ae which is IRE.ae, and follow me on Twitter at irayliwa, which is I-R-A-Y-L-I-W-A uh, As Sam mentioned, follow the podcast on YouTube at My City Podcast. Subscribe, share, and leave a review. Go ahead. Go ahead.